what's up there? You're listening to No Filter. I'm your host, Anna Kasparian, and you know it's gonna be a good show when one of our stage managers is dancing as soon as the intro music comes on. I'm looking forward to today's show because we're gonna have uh, David Pakman join me in the second segment. And in the first segment, I'm actually going to discuss something that isn't getting any attention in the media, even though it totally should. So let's get right to it. Charles Koch, a man known for playing a significant role in funding right-wing extremism in America, is allegedly teaming up with George Soros and Silicon Valley in an effort to combat online hate and extremism. The Observer reports that in mid-July, the After Charlottesville Project will host its second summit in San Francisco to bring together political and business leaders to discuss solutions for curbing political terrorism. The focus of this year's event will involve the private tech sector and best practices on the fight against hate and extremism online. Now, Charles Koch, of all people, wanting to curb political terrorism is ridiculous because he's been at the forefront of creating it. This organization that's trying to combat hate and extremism is called the After Charlottesville Project, meaning it was a direct response to the violence and murder that broke out during the Nazi march in Charlottesville, Virginia back in 2017. Tonight, panic and chaos in Charlottesville. A car plowing through counter protesters down this crowded street. Protesters scrambling, the camera swinging wildly as the man taking this video tries to get out of the way. The car just plowed through hundreds of people. The driver of the car is in custody. One person killed, a 32-year-old woman, others taken to the hospital. We are told some have life-threatening injuries. That is the exact type of violence and right-wing extremism the After Charlottesville Project would like to put a stop to. It seems to be an earnest and lofty goal, which is why I think it's in the best interest of this organization to take a good, hard look at who Charles Koch really is. Journalist Alex Koch, who has contributed some of his reporting to TYT, highlighted some of the key details about Koch's life in a piece for The Nation, writing that, quote, Charles Koch first entered the political world through the John Birch Society, a secretive anti-communist outfit that campaigned against the civil rights movement. Charles Koch is known for his sizable participation in the corporate corruption of politicians, but he understood that influencing lawmakers through campaign funding wasn't enough to push the country further to the right. So he began influencing and shaping college campuses throughout America. In 1974, during a gathering at one of his think tanks known as the Institute for Humane Studies, Charles Koch said, quote, educational programs are superior to political action and support of talented free market scholars is preferable to mass advertising. As a result, Koch and his various foundations have donated hundreds of millions of dollars to universities throughout the country. And there have already been consequences to these actions. Uncoke My Campus highlights one case where Charles Koch started funding Florida Atlantic University and then eventually began working with a right-wing neo-confederate professor named Marshall DeRose on an Orwellian project. In Florida, a state-certified program funded by Charles Koch Foundation and private prison Geo Group teaches Tea Party religious extremism to prisoners under the guise of civics education. 
Under the pretense of reducing recidivism, Koch network reformers are advocating for the mass privatization of prisoner reentry programs. This will create more opportunities for private contractors to profit and for Charles Koch and his allies to inject free market and religious extremism into public institutions. Koch also injects right-wing ideology on college campuses through an organization you may have heard of. Turning Point USA, which is run by this guy. Charlie. I live like a capitalist every single day, Chank. Hey. Yeah, Turning Point goes out of its way to terrorize and intimidate professors who they consider to be leftists by literally putting them on an online watch list. Unsurprisingly, this has incited violence toward educators. A California professor on the list got death threats after she was critical of Trump's election. We have been assaulted, it's an act of terrorism. A Princeton professor received death threats after saying that President Trump is a racist, sexist megalomaniac. There's an entire cottage industry for reporting on controversial things that faculty members say, which then riles up internet outrage mobs uh, who then try and get schools to get rid of people who they disagree with. In the last year, more than 100 incidents of targeted harassment against professors have been reported on college campuses. We're talking about death threats, people calling for me to be shot, lynched. They call for my wife to be raped and my kids to be shot in the head. At Trinity College in Connecticut, sociology professor Dr. Johnny Williams has also been a target. I hope you get what's coming to you. All this hate demonstrated by Turning Point USA is partly sponsored by the Foundation for Economic Education and the Generation Opportunity Institute. Both of those organizations are funded by the Koch Foundation. So, does it really make sense to have Charles Koch chime in on how to stop online hate and political extremism? And by the way, I'm not even done yet. Unfortunately, we need to bring up Dave Rubin again, who is also funded by a Koch-backed organization called Learn Liberty. On his show, Rubin Report, he brings on right-wing extremists like Stefan Molyneux to have discussions denigrating people of color by using pseudoscience to push a nonsense talking point about how some races are inherently dumber than others. If you're looking at East Asians with very high spatial IQ, they're gonna be, quote, overrepresented in those engineering fields and so on, but not because everyone who's got that IQ is up there. There just happen to be more of those, right? Mm -hmm. You've got uh, your run-of-the-mill vanilla Caucasians coming in at 100. And 100 is just, I don't know, it's just the, the baseline. They recalibrate it from time to time and so on. And then uh, below, I did some of this, I, what kind of mestizos or, or uh, Hispanics sometimes called, oh, that's a very loosey-goosey term, and uh, that sort of, 85, 90, and so on, and then you've got uh, blacks uh, in in uh, North America, particularly uh, African Americans coming in at, at, at 85, and there's been some upward drift a little bit. Uh, and then uh, below that, you start to get uh, sub-Saharan blacks at 70, there are uh, pygmies at, uh, in the high 50s, low 60s, there are um, the uh, indigenous people of Australia, I think in the low 60s. Blacks make less money than Ashkenazi Jews. But if you normalize by IQ, they don't. That trash that you just watched was sponsored by Charles Koch. And that disgusting conversation wasn't isolated on the Rubin Report. As Alex Koch reports, other episodes of Rubin Show have featured alt-right guests like Milo Yiannopoulos and Pizzagate nationalist Mike Cernovich. Charles Koch has a history of funding racist professors. 
And while the ideological extremism pushed by Charles Koch should certainly give the After Charlottesville project some pause, it's also worth mentioning how successfully the Koch brothers have divided the entire country economically. In fact, the way they've shaped educational institutions and corrupted our politicians has led to the type of anti-regulation free market outcome that exacerbated wealth inequality in America. Over the past 30 years, the 1% has become much richer, about $21 trillion to be exact. But the bottom 50% of Americans have found themselves deeper in debt. And when Americans can't feed themselves or their families, they understandably look for a scapegoat. It's the perfect vulnerable state of American politics for the vultures to come in and divide and conquer. For the right wing, the strategy has been to steal the riches and then blame the powerless for growing poverty when the masses rise up in anger. This is why we see people justify putting kids in cages at the border. And the only people who deserve to be put in cages are those who sit at the top, specifically those who game the system out of pure greed and those who deprived Americans of economic opportunities. Make no mistake, Charles Koch is a huge part of the right wing extremist conundrum in America. We shouldn't be looking to him for solutions. We'll be right back. Welcome back to No Filter. Joining me now is David Pakman, host of The David Pakman Show and also a longtime friend of TYT Network. David, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I have so much that I want to talk to you about. Unfortunately, we have such limited time, but I want to jump right in and talk a little bit about your interview on the Rogan podcast. I thought you did an excellent job and there were certain parts of that podcast that really stood out to me. I want to play one portion of it and get your reaction. Let's take a look. In this world, I think there's so much of this, the YouTube political world, the YouTube commentary world where people are so toxic. You know, there's there's so much negativity. There's so much what they call dunking on people. Mm. There's so much dunking. You do a little dunking. Some of it's warranted. It is warranted. Yes, but I don't know if it's beneficial Uh, to the to the people doing the dunking. Yes, or even to the cause. I think it is temporarily. Well, sometimes it's good because it 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 shows it mocks people's positions. So, David, the reason why I play that portion of the podcast is because. I used to listen to or watch the Rogan podcast regularly. I thought it was fascinating, even though it seemed as though the majority of his guests were right wing. Members of the so-called intellectual dark web have made countless appearances on his show. And it seems like he's always willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. But when the dunking happens by the left, he's quick to call it out and say, "Oh, maybe this is problematic, maybe this isn't such a great thing to do. I mean, am I wrong? Is that the way that you kind of also see this? The way I see it is just any opportunity that I have to convince someone or their audience of my view in the uh, sort of as an alternative to anything else that they've gotten up until that point, I see it as a good opportunity. So I think there's no question that if you look at the guest balance, there's no doubt that there have been prominent right wingers who appear there and they are pretty persuasive in, in sort of their own way. And Joe Rogan seems influenced by them. But in that same way, he seemed to be giving me that same benefit of the doubt. I mean, there's no question 
impression that that question was framed in a particular way. But then when I explained to him, I think there's a difference between you are attacking someone for who they are versus you're attacking someone for the bad ideas that they say. He did seem to get that. And from the feedback I got, his audience did also seem to get that. Yeah, one of the reasons why it caught my attention was because he's had people like Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro on not once, not twice, but several times, which is fine. This is not a critique on who he invites on his show, but he's never brought up the issue of dunking when Ben Shapiro is on. In fact, I find it so odd that he brings that up when you're on the show, when you've actually gone to pretty extreme lengths to be fair, and you've gone to extreme lengths to avoid, you know, ad hominem attacks and you know any of the kind of dunking that's. It, really characteristic of what you see on YouTube these days. Yeah, I mean, my whole idea when that came up was anytime someone says, hey, David, can you talk about SJWs on the left or Antifa or free speech suppression on campuses or dunking or whatever, I am always willing to critique it. I'm fine being the left critiquing the left, but I always try to make the point that these are like really small slices of the left and that big picture, the left is 70, 80, 85% united on most issues and inclusive of a variety of different ideas. So I'm fine going in there and being asked about it. And I don't feel as though it was a gotcha question of any kind. Mm-hmm. But at three or four different points during the interview, I said, I'm not afraid to critique this, but it's a very small part of the problem. Yeah, and you did such a great job in pointing that out. Because one of the reasons why I kind of stopped watching the podcast regularly was because it was very repetitive in bringing that so-called issue up and making it appear as though it's a much bigger issue than it really is. Now, you also had an interview recently with David Fuller, and you conceded a point to him that I'm gonna call you out on. Now, you're a friend, (laughs) and I wanna challenge you on this in a friendly way. Please, let's argue. Yeah, let's do it. So let's take a look at what I'm talking about. There's quite a lot of critiques of Dave that in a way, I can see that the audience of those shows wants people to, to beat up on Dave Rubin. So that becomes, so the tone of those critiques seems to become more and more combative. And then the chances for any kind of dialogue or the chances of Dave sort of being able to say, well, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll welcome these people onto my show, then seems to, to deteriorate massively because of the tone of those critiques. Do you see what I mean? Like that polarization seems to make good faith dialogue even more difficult. Absolutely. I mean, on the one hand, why are some of these voices not being interviewed by Dave Rubin? But on the other hand, I completely see why he would not be inclined to bring voices on that are sort of levying harsher and harsher criticisms against him in terms of their tone as it goes sort of like above and beyond the facts. So I feel like this is a little different from the points you were making on Rogan's podcast because the fact of the matter is you've been incredibly fair and incredibly nice to Dave Rubin. And Rubin decided to completely cut you off after you had done a one hour interview with him on your show. Now he never told you that he disliked the way the interview went. It's just that he probably didn't feel good about it because he didn't do a good job answering some of those questions. But he cut you off and then Sam Cedar was actually very polite toward Rubin in the beginning when he would ask Rubin to come on the show and maybe debate some of these ideas. It wasn't until after Rubin made it abundantly clear that he had no intention of debating people on the left 
where Sam started to become a little more aggressive in attacking. Am I correct in that analysis? You're completely correct. And I think you and I basically agree. I think the only disagreement may be I, you may be assuming I was referring to people when I made that statement to David Fuller that I wasn't thinking of in the sense that I completely agree that Sam Cedar has gone completely out of his way. And he's even said, hey, one of my employees made a comment that I didn't agree with. And I've apologized for that and I don't stand by it. And and that's something that he didn't even have to do. So I, I'm 100% in agreement with you. My general feeling was I understand why Dave would be disinclined to do interviews with anybody who's out there on the internet making critiques of him, but it was not meant to apply to Sam Cedar 100%. Okay, great. Because you know the way the conversation with Fuller went made it appear as though we're unfairly attacking him and going after him with ad hominem attacks. I just want to note that Ruben went on a media tour attacking TYT for two years straight before I finally decided to break my silence on him. And part of the reason why I did that was just you know to get revenge or anything like that. I just felt that it was important for people to understand who Ruben really is because while he might present himself as a good faith actor, in reality he has not only platformed but has failed to challenge some of the most dangerous ideology imaginable in American politics today. There's no question about that. And I think that it's really important not to allow two different standards to be applied because there's no question that if you're in a glass house and you're throwing stones, then that is something that absolutely needs to be called out and you've done that beautifully. So I'm completely in agreement there. I think where I thought it went unproductively far, and when I say unproductive, I don't mean it wasn't deserved. I don't mean the things that were being said were untrue. Where I think it went unproductively far was when there was a movement like Sam Cedar and myself and others who were saying, we would love to appear and engage in the battle of ideas and let the best ideas float to the top, like you know, fat on, on milk or whatever mm-hmm. analogy you want to use. Um, there was just a whole bunch of Twitter trolling that was attacking Dave, not for the content of what he had said. And I think if anything, it hurt the case that someone like me or that Sam was making where we were saying what we want to do is talk about ideas, not ad hominems, not insults, just ideas. Fair enough. Okay, great. So I want to move over to a topic that's somewhat related, but you drew attention to it, I believe, last week. And it's in regard to instigators on YouTube. These are individuals who specifically watch progressive programs on YouTube. And then what they'll do is, as you refer to it, tattle on on certain hosts. So you might say something, a listener will then take what you said, possibly twist it, and then call into Sam Cedar's show and misrepresent what you said in order to instigate some sort of drama. There's actually quite a bit of soap opera, progressive soap opera, content and commentary on YouTube now, which I'm kind of amused by. But it's also a little problematic, especially when it comes to unifying as progressives and pushing forward with issues that really matter. Can you elaborate a little more on your personal experience with this? Yeah, I mean, this is endless, right? I mean, I get, so what you did a piece on Tulsi and then I commented on that piece and then 10 channels do pieces distorting what I said about what you said about what Tulsi said. And then we're like 10 levels removed and nothing, I mean, just nothing productive is going to come from that. But I think that the reason this is so important beyond being entertaining, like the TMZization of progressive independent media is entertaining. Mm -hmm. And that's why actual TMZ does so well because this stuff is really entertaining. 
entertaining. But I think where it becomes problematic is, you know, when someone comes to me and says, David, you've got to call out toxic identity politics. And it's like, yeah, I do that. And it's not actually that big of a problem. Or you've got to call out campus free speech suppression. Yeah, I do that. It's just not that big of a problem. I mm-hmm. do have a concern, and I'm, I've got an upcoming piece about this on my program. That like the real problem on the left may be too rigidly defining who is allowed to be in the club and who isn't. And even though we're agreeing on 80 or 85 percent of the substance and could make really great positive changes if everybody came together, the 15 or 20 percent disagreement becomes a dividing line, and we end up not making progress while conservatives continue to get laws passed and get control of the courts, etc. And if you ask me what's like a real problem on the left, it would be that. Yeah, I think you make a great point. And you know, John Iderola would also agree with you. This is something that's been frustrating him quite a bit because while we're focused on the 10 to 15% that we may disagree on, the fact of the matter is the right wing is extremely good at unifying and pushing forward with a unified message. And so Look, I experienced this certainly in 2016. Now that the 2020 election is coming up, I'm having the exact same experience. So what are some possible solutions to combat this other than drawing attention to it? Well, I think that moving forward on, I mean, listen, without picking her out as the person that I think is the best candidate, because I think there's lots of good candidates. Elizabeth Warren has been focused on issues and being positive about what she wants to do as opposed to constantly being reactive to what she doesn't want to do that someone else said. I mean, obviously you're running against a you know, Donald Trump and his name is going to come up, but Focusing there, I mean, one example that I've run into is I'm against American military intervention in Venezuela. Most of the left is against American military intervention in Venezuela. I don't think Nicolas Maduro is a good guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, not everybody agrees with me on that. But the focus shouldn't be the philosophical differences we might have about Maduro. The focus should be we all agree that the US needs to stay the hell out of Venezuela. Let's focus on that rather than turn it into a conversation about ad hominems and how good or bad are Maduro and Chavez. And and that's like a microcosm of what I'm talking about. I totally understand what you're saying. So there also seems to be a misrepresentation of what certain online progressive hosts believe. And your example of Venezuela is actually a perfect one because there is for some reason, and it's not everyone in the left, but there's some portion of the left that wants to push this idea that Maduro's a great guy. And if you disagree with that, well, then you're pushing for a US invasion in Venezuela, which is not the case. Is this an intentional misrepresentation of the facts? Or do you think that there's something else at play? Do you think that maybe there's just a lack of nuance in some of these online arguments? Uh, There is misrepresentation, there's lack of nuance, and there's also bad faith argumentation. I mean, it depends who you're talking about, right? I mean, they can get a little slippery because sometimes they'll say, yeah, I hear you saying you're not for military intervention, but by saying Maduro's bad, you are creating an environment that by default justifies that intervention. It's like, no, I'm not. Right. I'm being extraordinarily clear that that's not what I'm doing. So it depends who you're talking about, but it's everything you mentioned, plus some people who are just acting in bad faith. David Pakman, host of The David Pakman Show, thank you so much for joining us on No Filter. Anytime, thank you. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to No Filter. If you enjoyed today's show, I would encourage you to leave a five star rating wherever you get your podcast because that helps to get the message out about the show and the types of topics that we cover, which typically aren't covered in the mainstream media. You can also follow us on social media. In fact, we have a new Twitter account, No Filter TYT. Please check that out, follow us, and share some of the videos and the updates that we have for you. I hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll see you next week with another episode of No Filter.